0: That we uh, we come in our consecutive uh, um, exposition of the book of Revelation to consider the church in Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love, unlike the city of brotherly shove that has taken its name. Revelation chapter three, we are starting in verse seven, the letter of Christ to the church in Philadelphia. Revelation 3, verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door. And no one can shut it, for you have of a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, indeed, we turn that ear of faith now to your word and pray by your Spirit who is able to reveal things from heaven to earth that he likewise, still speaking, would instruct us in our, in our wise duty. We pray that we too would be a church pleasing the Lord Jesus Christ and that we would be the church of the open door. We pray it for his sake. Amen. Well, as far as we know, the ancient city of Philadelphia had neither cheesesteaks nor scrapple, nor cream cheese. It was a planned city, an international city that was intentionally built on the very border where the ancient kingdoms of Lydia and Phrygia met the Roman province of Asia Minor, not the most interesting opening of my sermons, I realized together, but let's, let's go with it here. They built this border city in order to bring the Greek language and culture to foreign lands. In other words, this was, from the very beginning, planned to be a, a missionary city for the Greeks. And their plan worked. In fact, by the time this letter was written, the Lydians and Phryg- Phrygians had both all but forgotten their own languages and had been completely absorbed into Greek culture, Philadelphia was therefore called the gateway to the east and sat on one of the uh, ancient Silk Roads. The city was built in an area of the land called, quote, the burnt country. The burnt country because it had several extinct volcanoes in the area. Now, that had some positives and that had some negatives. On the plus side, all that volcanic ash made for very fertile soil that was perfect for growing grapes. In fact, they even had a temple in Philadelphia to Dionysius, the uh, Greek name for the Roman god Bacchus, god of wine. Uh, I don't think that was uh, just a coincidence. They lived there enjoying very productive wine country. That was the positive. On the negative side, all those extinct volcanoes meant that Philadelphia was prone to earthquakes. In fact, there was the big one back in AD 17, some years earlier that just about destroyed the city. And then the aftershocks continued, not for weeks or months, but for years. Even though the empire had generously paid to rebuild the city, the people were scared to live inside its walls for fear that they might fall on them one day. And so most of the population actually lived outside the city walls and just commuted in every day, the beginning of Philadelphia gridlock. So it was kind of like living in in California, Josiah. They had wine country. They had earthquakes, Uh, yes. Uh, They had beautiful wine to to delight you and earthquakes that could kill you. So in this strategically placed, fertile, earthquake-ridden city, we also find that there was a small church that had been faithful to the Great Commission. It didn't have the strength of a Corinth with its large and influential congregation or of Rome, with its rich and powerful members in that greatest city of the world, no, they didn't have much strength in Philadelphia, we read. But you notice that Jesus has nothing bad to say about them, meaning that they were enjoying both right doctrine and the right living that inevitably flows from it. They talked the talk, they walked the walk, and so our Lord Jesus has nothing but praise and promise for them. Let's uh, consider this passage, and especially the matter of the open door. And I'm sorry if you wanted me to talk about this tribulation, and especially its relation to pre-, mid-, or post-trib. Frankly, I don't see any of that in here at all. I don't see the point of telling a church that long since ago perished uh, that it would escape a tribulation far into the future, when, of course, the whole point of that tribulation is supposed to be that all the church... Is taken up from it. I don't have that view. I don't have that view of the tribulation. So I'm sorry to disappoint you if you want me to explain why I don't believe in such a tribulation or rapture for that matter. So considered, see me afterward. I am going to be speaking this evening more on the matter of the open door, which seems to be right in the center of our passage. So the open door. Uh, Jesus describes himself in verse 7 as the one who is holy, the one who is true, who... And you notice it's actually in quotes in the Bible because he's quoting directly from Isaiah 22. He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens... This is directly referring to something that had happened back in the city of Jerusalem many years earlier, many centuries earlier. You can read about it it's in chapter 22 of Isaiah's prophecy, where the Lord condemns the residents of Jerusalem, because despite the fact that God had just delivered them from their enemies who were encamped outside the city against them, uh, the people were not neither godly nor thankful, uh, like Romans 1, right? They were... Uh, Uh, They didn't glorify him as God, nor were they thankful for such a deliverance. Instead, they were so proud and trusting their own strength and resources. And so after rebuking the city as a whole, God turns his attention to the chief steward of the city called Shebna, who, uh, because of his pride, God says, is to be replaced by this Eliakim, who then would receive the key to the city instead, uh, and the sanctuary, for that matter, and then uh, Eliakim, rather than Shebna, would be the one who could control, who could come in, and who could go out of the city of David. Okay? So, uh, going to have a, a turnover in the management of the city. Uh, what's the point? Well, it's a little abstract, but Jesus is like the new Eliakim. That is to say, he holds the key to open or shut the doors of life in the new Jerusalem, you see. And Jesus... Has uh, taken that key to the door of New Jerusalem and eternal life in it in order to reward this faithful church, saying to them in verse 8, I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. Well, then, what, what was this door? And in what sense was it open? Well, if you'll pardon the pun, unfortunately, we don't have an open and shut interpretation. There are basically three kinds of doors described in the Bible. I'll note quickly one door we might call the door of salvation. You can think of it when Jesus said, I am the door. Whoever enters through me will be saved, that he is the way into God's presence, the way for our sins to be forgiven and so forth. So Jesus is the door to salvation and eternal life. And so we just read at the beginning of the service how God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles that they may be saved, the door of salvation. Um, A second kind of door, generally speaking, is found a few verses uh, from here. In fact, we'll read it next week in Revelation 20, where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. You could call this maybe the door to intimacy with Christ. Uh, It's actually not a verse about evangelism, though it's often used in that context, but it is a verse talking about repentance and how those who have become lukewarm uh, need to have their hearts warmed again to walk closely and intimately with their Lord, the door to intimacy. But the third kind of door, just generally speaking, we find in the Bible is what we might call a door of opportunity. And uh, really, this is generally speaking what this metaphor means. Um, we could even take those other two somehow and put it in the opportunity to be saved, the opportunity for fellowship with Christ. But but specifically here, uh, the idea in the New Testament especially is missionary opportunity, an opportunity for the gospel. For example, on Paul's third missionary journey, remember he spent three years in Ephesus and there, He taught daily in the hall of Tyrannus so that all Asia, probably including this city, could uh, hear the word. He met privately in homes and so forth. He wrote of a great and effective door that has opened to me, though there are many adversaries. He, He meant that even though he was facing opposition, the work was greatly blessed and people were continuing to come in and be saved and he remained in that place, for God had opened the door to a, a great and effective work. Uh, later, when he left for Troas, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians how the Lord had opened a door for me there as he preached the gospel, 2.12. Later, Paul spent two years in house arrest at Rome, and uh, there he was able to have visitors and speak of Christ, uh, both to Jews and to Gentiles, e- even the Roman soldiers, even the Praetorian Guard heard and were converted yet not satisfied with that. He asked the Colossians to pray for greater opportunity, that God would open out to us a door for the word, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, and that I may boldly manifest it as I ought to speak. So uh, other, other references uh, could be cited, but this seems to most people to be the one that best fits the context, the context where Jesus just says, I know your works. I, I know what you are doing, and that immediately goes to speak about this open door. So it seems to be this uh, open door for the effective uh, work of the gospel. Some notable people disagree with that, but that is the majority report. And so it seems that here in Philadelphia, this once missionary city for the Greeks has now become the place where another door for effective evangelism is going on now for the everlasting gospel of Christ. However, we also learn from this letter that, just as in Ephesus, so in Philadelphia, the Jews are opposing them. Uh, We've seen that before, and this church has little strength, Um, probably meaning they're a small congregation or possibly that they came from the lower classes of that Roman society, that very um, hierarchical society. Uh, e- either way, it's, it's clear they didn't have much leverage. They had no worldly influence to speak of. Just like in Smyrna, they were being opposed, if not persecuted by the Jewish population of the city who were claiming to be the true Jews, but lied, whom the Lord again calls the synagogue of Satan for claiming to be Jews, his people, the Jews and the Gentiles being the true Jews, If you like, um, the fierceness of this opposition combined with the weakness of the church surely tempted the Christians in Philadelphia to go softly, to hold their peace, to mind their own business. But Christ was of another mind altogether. It was in this very city where the Jewish opposition was strong and where they were weak that the Lord opened a door for the gospel, a door that he says no man is going to be able to shut. The result, even that some of these opposing Jews would receive the gospel, that's the reference in verse 9. Indeed, I will make some of those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews, but are not, but lie. All true Jews believe in Jesus. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. You say, what's this when worshiping at the feet of the, of the church? I thought you are not supposed to worship at the feet of... No, no you understand. This is uh, almost certainly a reference both to Isaiah and to Ezekiel, where God makes a promise to his people that uh, in the day of Messiah, the Gentile nations shall come and, quote, I'll quote from Isaiah 45, bow down to you. And they will make supplication to you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other God. Isaiah 45, 14. So that's the picture of the Gentiles bowing down at the feet of the Jews. Uh, God is in your midst. There is no God but your God. And and now here in a very striking reversal, those Jews are going to be bowing at the feet of the church both Jew and Gentile, of course, but the Jews are doing the bowing and acknowledging that the true God is among them. A promise of the progress of the gospel that is that open door is even going to include some who have the most determined resistance, Israel according to the flesh. Okay, so that's my basic exposition of the passage so far. Just. Opening up to you the, the general idea of what's going on, what have we learned? Three centuries before, Philadelphia became this open door to, speak, to spread Greek culture to the lands and beyond. But now they had become a truly missionary city with an opportunity to open the door uh, through the Philadelphian church to carry the message of, love, of the love of God in Christ to those who have never heard it or even those who have heretofore resisted it. And since it was a door that our mighty Lord Jesus was opening, no man would be able to close it. But for the rest of the time, I'd like to consider the three things mentioned about this church, three particular qualities about them that uh, give the reason, it seems, why God granted them this opportunity. I'll show you that. The reason that God granted them this opportunity. Um, I, I will mention something that's not, Explicitly stated, um, the fact that there is no condemnation for this church means it's a healthy church, right? Follow that. There's nothing wrong, so we can assume that uh, their walk and their talk were good. It was a healthy church, and I've mentioned to you before, not from a long time, not since a long time ago, that uh, healthy church, healthy churches are. Evangelistically effective. I mean, just statistically speaking, healthy churches are evangelistically effective. Not to say that just that evangelism is part of their health. I'm actually saying it the other round, uh, the other way around. In the largest quantitative survey of congregations across the world, across six continents, uh, the uh, uh, Christian Swartz's Natural Church Development not rec- recommending all of the work, but his point is this: in Every case, every case, without one single exception across, what is it now, hundreds of thousands of churches, all churches that were strong in his eight areas of evaluation, all of them were growing churches. It doesn't matter if the last factory in in town has closed down, right? Healthy churches advance the gospel. And evangelism is part of that health. But what I'm saying is the fact that there was nothing to... Oppose in the congregation meant that there was by then everything to commend they were holding on to the word and so forth and and that health is now going to be if you like crowned with an extension of the gospel this healthy church that holds fast to the word is going to be the kind of church that i will use to bless my gospel to others okay if you got problems of your own and as we see in the other churches like you got to deal with your problems right You are doing well. I am going to send you to others, and they are going to come. That's not stated in the the letter, and I hate to make a point about what's not stated, but the fact that no condemnations were given, uh, and they do hold to the word, as I'll show you, there is a connection in the passage, but let's go. Besides being healthy in doctrine and labor that I've already mentioned, There are three characteristics in particular, combining to make them an especially useful church to the Lord, and I'm gonna spend half the time on number one, and then hit the other two quickly. So don't get worried when I say number two, and we're late in the day, okay? All right. Uh, This was first a church, all three of these are, are W's. First of all, this was a church that was weak. Weak. Look at verse eight. Where Jesus says, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For, that word is uh, haughty, that word is uh, the word of purpose. In other words, usually translated because, or since, a word of purpose. I'm going to translate it because. um, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, because you have a little strength. Since you have a little strength. I am doing this work, for you are weak. This was not a megachurch with seemingly limitless resources that they didn't have to depend on the Lord or anyone else. This was not a church that had a Starbucks in the foyer. They were weak. They had a little strength. In many ways, when it comes to open doors, weakness can be a very, very good thing. For to be an effective tool in God's hands, we must realize just how little... Our strength is so that we stay fully dependent upon His unlimited power. You don't have to be strong or impressive or attractive to be effective for God. Look at me. Okay, two of you paying attention there. Um, you have to learn to rely upon God's power. That's the kind of church, that's the kind of Christian that God does mighty things for. Uh, Martin Luther put it this way, you remember, in his justly famous hymn, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. True universally, God is pleased to employ believers and churches like Gideon's army, who know that they are nothing apart from his power. And if dependence is a goal, then weakness is an advantage. God even gives weakness for this very reason. You remember how Paul described to the Corinthians, in order to encourage them in such a mindset, how uh, according to the flesh, not many were mighty, not many were noble, not many uh, called uh, who have much in this world. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put shame to the wise. God has chosen the weak weak things of the world, to put to shame the things that are mighty, the base things of this world, and the things that are despised God has chosen, the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. And think about those first evangelists, we call them the apostles. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we call them evangelists. right? These, these apostles he sent out, who, who were these men? Fishermen, right? People of no worldly account. People who were not able to rely upon their abilities. Paul himself although obviously with a massive mind a man whom even his enemies say look uh, he's unimpressive in presence and uh, his speech is contemptible Right? Um, he just did not have the gifts and the presence of others these are the men whom God chose to change the world people that would not be able to trust in their greatness in any way a principle that also applies to you and me as we consider open doors in the advance of the gospel. There's no one too small here, even too young, too humble, certainly, that God may use to accomplish great things in His kingdom. And I could tell you stories of children doing evangelism that break, that break mighty hearts. It's written that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Or as one man wrote, if you feel weak, limited, or ordinary, then you are the best material through which God delights to work. You remember how God even gave Paul extra weakness because he had blessed him in certain ways, but in 2 Corinthians, Paul rehearses the fact that he had this painful thorn in the flesh that he said made him weak. And he cried out again and again, and and, and finally God's reply to him was, no, no, Paul. Uh, no, this, this, this uh, messenger of Satan to torment you, he, he's given for another purpose, lest you be puffed up in pride. And God's final word to him, the Lord's word, final word to him was, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So Paul concludes, therefore I most gladly will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest on me, for when I'm weak, then I am strong. One more illustration Hudson Taylor, that celebrated missionary, that founder of China Inland Mission, he understood what Paul was getting at because he wrote When God sought me out and called me to do his work in China, he must have said, This man is weak enough, he will do. And Taylor was right. One important secret of what he called spiritual power, great spiritual power, is to be aware of our utter helpless weakness and our dependence on God's strength. Um, These open doors that we are so intimidated by to do effective work for the Lord. We are often our worst enemies in these things as our pride is on the line as what are we going to say to convince them and um, how will we be able to overcome i mean we, we need to be able to speak effectively of course but but this is the wrong place to start do you know how weak you are with respect to bringing salvation to another human creature Have you learned how much you need God's strength? Yes, he's pleased to use his human instruments, but God must do the work or it will not be done. And have you ever experienced the wonderful joy of God doing something through you like that, that you would never be able to do on your own, like bring a fellow human being to share with you in the joy of eternal life? I I major on this point because... We need to remember how much weakness we have and how much weakness we need. Hudson Taylor, again, he wrote that that we must learn as ambassadors for Christ that we need to move man through God by prayer alone. Those are his words. To move man through God by prayer alone. And he obviously didn't mean that we need to learn how to sit around at home and pray rather than engage in evangelism and foreign missions. No, 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 that that, that, that misunderstands. He meant that we must learn God is doing the entire work. We are basically showing up and speaking. And we need to learn that God is doing the deed and that our complete dependence and inability must find, therefore, its success only in God's power. And therefore, seeking God through prayer We may move men. You remember the example of this church. Remember that uh, God prefers to use the weak to do his will. You, too, become Philadelphians. The church of Philadelphia had little strength. They had little in common with the the mighty churches, perhaps, of our nation. But, boy, was God blessing them. Uh, I I really think, actually, in so many ways... um, to go off on this tangent for a little while longer this 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 church of little strength has a great deal in common with the worldwide church of the lord jesus in every age if we consider it as a community of those who are genuinely devoted to him and his cause that number is always weak and small and powerless relatively in numbers and wealth and prestige. I mean, there has scarcely been a time in human history anywhere where the true church has wielded any power in this world, and it usually didn't go well when they did it, as a matter of fact. But small or not, weak or not, the church does work that it could never do on its own through leading people to see the one who holds the key of David who who is able to give them entrance to the New Jerusalem. And one more practical application now before we move on. What is it that makes evangelism so difficult for you and for me? Isn't it the fact that, I mean, there are so many more unbelievers than serious Christians in the world, and we represent such a minority viewpoint. I mean, it's intimidating. If most people were convinced already... We could speak to those who remain. If, so, if, the, if the world were full of sincere Christians and the, the most wealthy, the most powerful, the most successful people were the most devout disciples of Jesus Christ, and only a minority were unbelievers, well, it would be so much easier, we would think, to speak confidently of Christ, even to those who might despise the message. It would be easy to have the confidence of our convictions if those convictions were widely held. But peer pressure is one of the most powerful influences in the world. And it works as much on adults as it does on you teenagers and little kids, little children. So when most people are not believers in the world and don't welcome the message about Christ or his salvation, it's much harder to be as bold and fearless as the gospel requires, as Paul says the church needs to pray that he would be. And the the current situation requires us to stand out, to be different, to risk having our pride injured, to feel humiliated. Is it not so with you? We are lacking confidence because we lack strength and influence and size. And that is the problem that this letter does in so many ways address. I've told you before about Alvin Plantinga, now uh, retired, professor of philosophy from Notre Dame, one of the most influential and respected philosophers in the world, no? Uh, Used to be president of the uh, American Philosophical Association, western half of the U.S. A man of a, a great mind, a great Christian mind. He wrote, quote, a few years back, I several times found myself thinking about a certain person and feeling obliged to call him and and speak with him about Christianity. This was a person for whom I had a lot of respect, but who, I thought, had nothing but disdain for Christianity. I felt obliged to call him, but I always did my best to put the thought out of my mind, being impeded by fear and embarrassment. What would I say? Hello? Have you found Jesus? And wouldn't he think that I was completely out of my mind? Not to mention really weird. And then later I heard that during this very time, that person in question was in the process of becoming a Christian. And I, I had been invited to take part in something of real importance, and I refused the invitation out of cowardice and stupidity." End quote. Here's a man possessed of a very powerful mind, a man who made it to the pinnacle of his profession, a a profession that was famous for the wisdom and intelligence of his members. This is the sort of man who, I I understand from those who went to school with him, like when he raised his hand in his graduate classes, the, the professors would visibly wince because they knew that they were about to be exposed yet again as not being as smart as their students. Here's the sort of man who one would think could talk about the Lord with anyone, even the most ardent skeptic, apologist that he was, with confidence because of who he is. Listen to me, I am Alvin Plantiga. And what had Alvin Plantiga, of all people, to fear from an unbelieving friend? And yet, even this man was embarrassed and held back. The weakness. The weakness of the Christian. The weakness of the Christian faith in the world. The weakness of the Christian church down to this day. The church in Philadelphia knew all about it. What did they have? They knew their weakness. They faced their fears and temptations squarely. And they did not let them detract from their duty and their privilege to call others to faith in Christ. He knows their works and now he's going to bless them with a great open door. That weak church was going to do mighty things. How good it is to recognize things as they truly are. Frankly, we are nothing. But he is everything. We can do nothing. But he has the key of David. And Plantica's confession is interesting because it's a reminder to us that the Lord himself does open the door. And that no one is going to be able to shut it if the Lord is opening And that person Plantinga feared to talk to was drawn to the faith anyway. Plantinga or not, his skepticism was overcome and he found himself a follower of Christ when before he had no such sympathy at all for the Christian faith. He didn't need one of the world's great philosophers to convince him, though he has a couple books that are really good. But the Lord did the work. And how many times has that church universal has always been just like Philadelphia, if they could but see it. In truth, weak, small, not influential. The power it wields comes only from above, and the Lord has only ever asked of his insignificant people that they be faithful, hold forth his word, and go forth as the missionaries he has called them to be. He has asked them To disregard their weakness and to look to the one who can open doors that no man can shut. And all they ever had to do was to the best of their weak ability, point to Christ, that true door of the sheep. And wherever the weak are found faithful, they'll have some measure of happy results, participate in a promise, and we read here receive a crown from the Lord Jesus Christ that no man may take away. Brothers and sisters, Be Philadelphians. Be Philadelphians. Utterly uncaring of your smallness or that of your church or your weakness or that of the Christian cause in society. You are nothing. You have nothing but Christ. Keep your eye fixed upon his open door and the one who's opened it and point to him. And he can do and he will do what we cannot the church was weak. All right, I've spent more than half of my time on that first point. I'm going to move on. The church was point one, weak. Point two, not three, but W. Weak, point .2 two wordy. Jesus says in verse eight, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. Again, I'll translate, because for, the purpo- for this purpose, you have kept my word. W, wordy. They were wordy. The members of this weak church clung to Christ's word for strength, for guidance. They didn't allow it to suffer corruption as in some of the other churches we've read. Presumably they studied it with a passion and would not allow those false teachers, that implicit condemnation that was explicit elsewhere. Or they were able to say with a psalmist... Psalm one hundred and nineteen. 119, O oh, how love I thy law, it is my study all the day. It makes me wiser than my foes, its precepts with me stay. You, through your commandments, O Lord, make me wiser than my enemies, they are ever with me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Well, I could obviously have a whole sermon on the fact that it was a church that held the word, a wordy church. But I'll simply make the connection here. The fact is God will open the door for effective evangelism and missions when believers tell the biblical truth, when they stand on the authority of Scripture, and when they live according to the, teaches, the teachings of this book. And, and this, is, this is why the, uh, the, the people in the, the, you know, the, the main line, the older churches, that have been saying for years now, the church needs to change or die and they re-evaluate their interpretation of this and that to suit the culture and we need to adapt to the culture, we need to change or die, right? That they themselves are dying at an alarming rate. And these that are holding fast to the word, foolish and backward as we are, continue to see it go from strength to strength. When we tell the biblical truth, stand on the authority of Scripture, when we live according to the teachings of this book, and when we are standing out, yes, in an ungodly world, expecting that they are only going to revile and hate us, that wordy Christian in a wordy church finds that the Lord opens the door. Are you keeping God's word? Is it your study all the day? Are you living accordingly? in an ungodly age. Are you standing out for Christ? Even if you think, well, the way I'm standing out, uh, I doubt that anybody's going to be attracted to Christ because of me. No, no, no. These are the people whom the Lord is pleased to use. The Lord will open doors for such. The doors will be closed to you if you keep this book closed. But the church that was weak was nevertheless wordy and one more thing. This Philadelphian church wavered not. Last W. They wavered not. Okay, I'm really reaching for these, but I'm trying to keep you engaged on a Sunday evening, right, when I'm going along. Wavered not. Let's look at verse 8 again, where Jesus says, um, yep, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm opening before you uh, a door that no man could shut because uh, I know you have a little strength and you have kept my word and you have not denied My name, you have wavered not. Here's a church whose members refused to give up their faith in Jesus, no matter the slander of the Jews, the peer pressure of a city filled with idol worshipers, the opposition, even of the persecution they faced, though not much is mentioned here. None of that could ever make them waver. They wavered not. They have not denied their name, uh, implied despite the uh, thoughts they may have had for doing so. They were faithful to the end and they would continue to speak up for Jesus. You know, it was centuries later when the Muslims fluttered fluttered across Asia Minor following these very roads that we've been reading about. Um, And interestingly, when every other town had fallen, Philadelphia alone remained. Of all the of all the churches in all the cities in Revelation for centuries, this was alone a, a free Greek Christian city in the midst of a heathen people. Uh, I will say in the 13th century and under the Seljuk Turks, uh, the church did disappear for a time and there was no church in that city, but there is again today. and In fact, with the exception of ancient Smyrna, now Izmir, um, all the rest of the other churches today are in ruins, but Here also, the ancient name Philadelphia, the church still stands today holding aloft the banner of the Christian faith. Despite all the opposition, to this day, they waver not. So Jesus says, you don't waver, now I want you to hold on to what you have. Stand fast that no man may take your crown. I have opened the door before you. And I know you have not wavered. You've not denied my name. Now you keep doing that. There's no place for quitting in my kingdom. Stand fast until the end. Until he comes. And that's what this little church was doing. Um, The tribulation that was about to descend upon the whole world of that day, presumably at the fire of Rome, 64 A.D. is my view of the early date of Revelation. Another possibility later, the Decian uh, persecution, or what's the rather... uh, early 2nd century. Anyway, the point is, the persecution was about to get very hot. This city all the way on the border at the intersection with the other lands was going to be spared. It is as though the great test was going to come and God looks at this little church on the fringe of the border and says, you know, you've already passed the test. Now, now you go forth. O oh, gateway to the east, you, you go and do a great work for me and I will spare you what's coming upon the world. In conclusion, this congregation in Philadelphia shows us that these three quantities, uh, rather qualities, combine to make us just the kind of church the Lord delights to use, the kind of Christian that God is pleased to use, the kind of believer for whom God opens doors. I ask you again, is He opening these doors for you to a, to a great and effective work? If not, you could go through the, the list here as a healthy Christian, I, I know that you are holding the Word and 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 doctrine well. Um, are are you lacking weakness? Are you are you seeking to do it all by your own power? Is it is it your own pride that's getting in this in the way of humbly seeking God's power and standing for Christ? Is it weakness? Is it worldliness? That is to say, are you blending in? Are you letting the culture steer the course of your life that you do not have that noticeable testimony? Are your standards more reflective of the world than the word? Are you worldly rather than wordy? Or, or maybe you are wavering. Maybe you are not holding forth are holding fast to his name. Maybe, maybe you at these critical moments are, are, are losing your strength. These are the things to seek, brothers and sisters, that you may be Philadelphians, those whom God not only commends, but greatly uses in the world. There is a poem, Lord, lay some soul upon my heart and love that soul through me, and may I bravely do my part to win that soul for thee. And when I come to the beautiful city and the saved from around me, from all around me appear, I want to hear somebody tell me. It was you who invited me here. So may it be. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, how good it is to be able to hear that unvarnished truth from our Lord Jesus Christ. Truly, Father, as humbling as it is, especially for the one who preaches, to say these things, knowing in so many ways the way in which I have fallen short and this church has fallen short of your glory. Oh, I do pray that even as the apostle prayed, we would have grace to declare your word boldly as we ought, that you would open a great and effective door for us, that we, rejecting um, all self-reliance to adopt your weakness, rejecting all worldliness to adopt your wordiness, rejecting all wavering in favor of this steadfast reliance upon your mighty Son's name. We pray that we too would rise above this condemned world and be for it light in a dark place that the gateway to the east may again rise here in this place. We pray it for Christ's sake.